Welcome back to Revolution in Ideology. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are going to talk about the Native American occupation of Alcatraz in 1969. Um, and uh, the goal here is to talk about more the symbolism behind the movement. Yes, it was a revolutionary action, uh, although the goal wasn't like necessarily to overthrow the California government or the United States government. It was an act um, within a larger movement that eventually uh, uh, coalesced around a organization called the American Indian Movement, better known as AIM. Now, AIM was not necessarily the direct orchestrator of this. They were doing their own thing, but they visited Alcatraz and drew inspiration for a larger movement uh, against um, really everything about uh, U.S. colonial policy against indigenous people dating back, as we know, centuries, right? So Alcatraz was about symbolism. So even though some um, uh, critics might posit it as ultimately, penultimately a, a failure in that the Native Americans that occupied Alcatraz did not get to keep it and do all the things that they were going to do to it. It actually did uh, motivate legislation that began to favor uh, Native Americans. And so that's what we're going to talk about, how symbolism can kind of move social movement forward. So before we dig in, I want to talk real quickly about these ideas of monumentality and symbolism within social movements. Alcatraz itself, of course, is a symbol. There's a great quote here by a man named Andrew Ross that kind of digs into this idea of symbolism. He says, Freud's Acropolis, of course, speaking of Sigmund Freud, Freud's Acropolis is a prospect invented for us by the maternal body on behalf of the desire to believe that we have been there before. And Alcatraz represents that not only as a symbol for the social movement, but as a symbol for Native American culture. And we're going to dig into like that connection here in just a moment. I also want to dig into the ideas of what monumentality and symbolism are. Uh, it basically, this act is the act of creating something significant, something with a meaning beyond its immediate consideration. Symbolism, it embodies the need for representative meaning within the human condition. Man-made symbols reciprocally inform concepts, ideology, ideologies, and dialectics for life and death that inform millions. Some symbols also fabricate commitments to space such as national, provincial, or state flags, and still more remain natural and ancient symbols such as the mere circle. Its relevance for both ancient and indigenous peoples represents a fundamental part of the universe and its permanent geometric fixture in beliefs and philosophies throughout the history of cultures. Yet, as humans progress, symbols grow far more complex, and the ways in which they are created and then perceived proves quite ambiguous. The creation of symbols, particularly in physical space and in grandiose scales, often bears more gravitational pull. Alcatraz is one of those physical spaces that we're going to be talking about today. This action is often known as monumentality. It's the reason that, um, I mean, we create everything from Statues of Liberties to Mount Rushmore's to Eiffel Towers to Great Walls. I mean, Great Wall also had like a, a utilitarian purpose, obviously, but it's also symbolic, right? Monumentality seeks to either build or alter, alter a physical space that embodies an emotional, ethical, or even moral space larger than itself. This agency, monumentality, both through the process of creation and the final product, garners attention, clout, influence perception, and seeks to educate. Nick, anything that you want to chime in regarding like these symbolic acts, or in this case, the use of physical space as symbolism, monumentality in terms of social movement? Anything you want to add? I think you pretty much nailed it, right? Like we talked about so many examples throughout the podcast and our classes and so forth, like 
the storming of the Bastille and the French Revolution and like tarring and feathering in the American War for Independence and so forth. Like there's so many examples of like the creation, the use of symbolism to mean something much bigger and to have a much bigger impact on the movement, right? Whether it's as a threat or as uh, like the storming of the Bastille, there it was a symbol of right oppression and so forth. And hugely important. Not only that, but we talk extensively about framing and how to frame a social movement and the, the different framing strategies and so forth. And symbolism plays a huge role in that as well. Perfect. Okay. So to do this well, we're going to have to dig back a little bit into Alcatraz's history um, in Native American culture as well as U.S. culture. So its roots in terms of like being identified by peoples are like 10 to 20,000 years old. So people were aware of Alcatraz and its use as an island or its existence as an island, its use. It's, it, there's not a lot of useful things there, but we'll get to that later. Its existence as an island between 10 and 20,000 years old. Maydu, Pitt, Pitt River Native Americans um, originally had identified it in their language as the Rainbow Rock or the Diamond Island. I would, I would use the Native American language here, but I don't want to butcher it and, and offend anybody. So in, in English, they would call it Rainbow Rock, or excuse me, Rock Rainbow or Diamond Island. The first uh, Europeans to see Alcatraz um, were the Spaniards, of course, based on their colonial project. And a Spanish miss missionary named uh, Manuel de Ayala officially dubbed it Isla de los Alcatrazes in 1775, um, which um, in uh, translation to English means the island of the pelicans. So for those of you that were always wondering where the word Alcatraz comes from, it's from the Spanish word for pelican. So you learn something new every day, right? Right. Okay. After the United States eventually continues its quote-unquote manifest destiny, which we've already had a couple of episodes on, and uh, continues its campaigns um, uh, west, we'll skip all of that history because we just don't need it here, um, Alcatraz became uh, a place that U.S. colonizers evolved into a prison, and it housed, not ironically, a sizable amount of Native Americans that had been captured during the ethnic cleansing campaigns by the United States military in the West. So I must stress this, that like structures were already put there by the Spanish colonizers, but eventually when Spain, of course, goes away from being a co colonial power, especially after the Spanish-American War of 1898, and the U.S. continued its manifest destiny um, sweeping west, um, any indigenous peoples that they did not kill ended up either being um, sent off to like boarding schools or placed on reservations, or in this case, many of the ones that were considered quote unquote criminals, or in a modern term, we would say insurgents or whatever, they were actually imprisoned and many of them would be imprisoned on Alcatraz. So like, I must stress this Alcatraz as a prison's original um, symbolism was the housing of Native American insurgency. What do you think of that, Nick? This is a very important part of the history of the island that leads us into why the occupation has more meaning than we might otherwise assume that it does. So eventually the United States converted the island to a federal pen penitentiary, better known as The Rock, um, from apparently Sean Connery fame, in 1934. They, uh, it actually stopped its function as a full-fledged federal penitentiary in 1963 and was eventually declared surplus U.S. government property um, in that same year. So essentially between 1934 and 1963 is where it gets that like icon iconography of being like this inescapable like prison with like these hard 
hardened criminals in it and these murderers and, 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 and bootleggers and gangsters and whatever, whoever else we can imagine was there. That's that it was between 1934 and 1963. So it really only operated that way for about 29 years. Um, most of its history in terms of a prison was again, not ironically, um, housing native Americans. So Let's fast forward now um, and pick up in November 20th of 1969. That's where we are. This island was formally occupied by a small invading, of, uh, invading force of American I Indians. That's what they identified themselves as at the time. And we'll get into like why they chose that name here in just a moment. But it was somewhat of a theatrical gesture, right? We talked about the symbolism. It is taking a former monument of oppression from the contested dominant culture and altering its meaning into something completely different. Basically taking this thing from the oppressive culture, owning it, and then converting it into um, something subversive, right? Okay. This wasn't even actually the first occupation um, of Alcatraz by First Nations. Five years earlier, uh, specifically the Sioux Nation um, was led by a man named Richard McKenzie, and they occupied Alcatraz for a few hours based on some of the terminology of the Sioux Treaty in 18, of 1868. It was eventually overturned in courts, but they were basically occupying the island. Richard was going to occupy the island um, and then use language in the Treaty of 1868 to justify the occupation. It did not work out, relying on the U.S legislative system would never work out for indigenous people. There's a rich history of that. Um, broken treaties. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really don't have, literally the United States has broken every treaty it's ever signed with the First Nation. Like we do not have a very good track record uh, in that regard. So Richard McKenzie um, did not win his, his court case. However, this initial occupation by McKenzie did get other First Nations thinking about Alcatraz um, as early as 1964. So I must add that in. I also want to talk real quickly about the context um, in which this occupation takes place. It's the late 1960s. What's going on in the late 1960s in the United States, Nick? I mean, it's not even the 1960s. It's the global 60s, really. Yeah, it is the global 60s. Yeah, good call. Yeah, the just challenging of oppression in so many fronts, whether it's um, gay rights or civil rights or the protests against the war and so forth. I mean, so many things are coming to fruition, these battles against inequality and et cetera. Yeah, I mean, the 1960s is like challenging, like the systems of oppression um, all around the world. And Nick's right, we've got black power, we've got brown power. The, of course, from this, we'll get the red power movement, which we'll talk a little bit about. Student pro protests, the SDS, Vietnam protests, second wave feminism, um, the list just goes on and on. And it's into this uh, milieu that uh, these First Nations are going to try and like carve out their little bit of resistance to um, the power uh, players at, at hand. Further, um, Alcatraz is in the Bay Area. So when we're already in this like this context of social movement happening all around, the Bay Area of California itself is like, I would argue like the capital of of all of this. So it's, it is, the Bay Area is a hotbed from like San Francisco to Oakland. Like this is where all of this is going down. Most importantly, the First Nations and their rich history of fighting um, ethnic cleansing for nearly five centuries was continuously brought up. And like the iconography of everybody from Powhatan to uh, Medicom, i.e. King Philip, 
Pontiac, Tecumseh, Crazy Horse, Geronimo, all of this is actually being taught in the community at that time. So there is this kind of like move towards like recapturing one's history of resistance to colonization. So you have the, the, the context of social movement from all of these other groups. You have this reinvigoration of uh, Native American history and its resistance to colonization. And all of these kind of come together into this magic elixir of resistance that we're going to be talking about today. Okay. In terms of like the immediate history, we're gonna go back in time for just a second and talk about like what, what formulated this like Bay Area um, um, amalgamation of different First Nations. Cause it's not all one nation that ends up in the Bay Area. It's a whole bunch of them that end up there more or less as like refugees for lack of a better term. So let's talk about that real fast. How did they get to the Bay Area? Okay. First thing we have to talk about um, is the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, um, authored by John Collier. It, it was introduced at the 73rd Congress by Senators Burton, K. Wheeler, and Edgar Howard. Let me clarify, excuse me. The IRA is authored by Senators Burton, K. Wheeler, and Edgar Howard, not John Collier in 1934. Essentially what this IRA uh, outlined was the cessation of land allotments outside construction of semi-autonomous tribal governments and financial aid for Indian affairs. So like on the surface, it looks okay, right? Essentially what the IRA is going to do is it's going to stop the U.S. government from allotting land, right? It's also going, but, 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 but I must stress this outside construction of semi-autonomous tribal governments. Yes, the tribal governments on indigenous lands will be semi-autonomous, but it's constructed, chosen by the BIA. Who's the BIA, Nick? The Bureau of Indian Affairs. So it's not necessarily, these government leaders that will be on these tribal lands are not First Nation. They are the, uh, the colonizer in this, in this um, context that are the ones that will be deciding how the governments on these lands are going to operate. There is going to be some financial aid for Indian Affairs, but that money is not going to be able to, like Native Americans are not going to decide how that money is going to be allocated who's going to decide the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So it's important for us to understand. Um, it's essentially going to be an attempt, another attempt after centuries of attempts at this, at systematic assimilation. What's systematic assimilation in your, your opinion? I think it's essentially policy in this case to try to force indigenous peoples to assimilate into the United States and specifically in the United States culture and probably more specifically the United States economic system is really what they're after. There's a great quote from this time period by uh, Robert Brunette who is Brule Sioux. So this was his interpretation of what was going on. He says, and I quote, built into the BIA chairman system were all the weaknesses, but none of the strengths of local government in middle America. The white agent was retained in a form of superintendent, a white BIA appointee who holds veto power over tribal finances. Through the superintendent, the BIA could still tell the Indian people how many cows they could buy or sell, how much timber they could cut, and what their school curricula should be. There was no system of checks and balances, no procedure through which inequities could be righted. It was a blueprint for elected tyranny. I don't think I could say it any better myself. After the failure of the Indian Reorganization Act, the U.S. government decides to go even harder against First Nations, forcing this uh, assimilation policy. Uh, eventually, a very famous publication is uh, put together by the United States government. Uh, Native Americans know it as the Doomsday Book. It is essentially an 1800-page report 
produced in all the way back in 1952 by the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, and government land speculators. The goal in this publication was to eliminate the reservation system altogether. Um, the expense and difficulty of doing so was justified by taking control of all of the natural resources on that land. You see, when the uh, uh, United States had been uh, forcefully ethnically cleansing these lands of Native Americans for centuries prior, they thought they were, uh, of course, moving Native Americans to the least desirable lands um, in places like Oklahoma or New Mexico or Arizona or wherever else uh, these larger reservations might be. That However, due to, techno or due to the technology at the time, they didn't realize all of the natural resources underneath the land. And so when uh, these speculators went out and began doing surveys of all of the natural resources underneath the land on these reservations, they found that the American government also wanted those resources and they were going to find a way to access them. So further moving these Native Americans off land, off the reservations they had already granted them was the goal. Timber and water were key. 23 Western tribes controlled about 33% of the country's low, surf, low sulfur coal as well. Uh, Native American reservations also contained about 80% of the nation's uranium reserves and about 3 to 10% of gas or petroleum reserves. Um, so essentially, this was a way for the United States government to now access those reserves and forcefully remove Native Americans from their land again for the umpteenth time. They passed Resolution 108 in 1953, better known as the Termination Act. The Termination Act is important. It essentially meant to terminate the reservation system. BIA relocation programs were implemented to basically herd people up, collect people, um, and plot these refugees into urban areas with minimum um, government aid and they basically left them to fend for themselves. So I must stress this, they basically rounded people up on reservations, these were already reservations, plopped them in big urban areas, um, A, so that they could access the resources below, and B, as we already talked about, to get uh, Native Americans to assimilate to modern Western culture by being in these ultra urban environments like a San Francisco or a Denver or a Los Angeles or a whatever. Uh, any commentary right now, Nick? I mean, yeah, I just think it's absolutely atrocious that the reservation system was so wrong and broken already. And the US government discovers that there's actually, it actually is valuable where they put them. They thought that there was nothing there, but they discovered that there's actually valuable resources. So their strategy is just to completely abolish the reservation system wholesale and move all of the people into urban areas so that they literally have no choice but to fully assimilate. I and mean, it's just disgusting. Yeah, well, and here, Adam Fortunate Eagle, who is one of our primary sources from the time, and, and he has a whole book on the takeover of Alcatraz, as he was actually one of the primary architects, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later. But he has a great quote that kind of puts all this together about what the Native American experience was for those that ended up in these urban environments. He says this, and I quote, assimilation was not only tempting, but also encouraged in a society that preferred its Indians to be caricatures. There was no easy path back to the blanket, as it was termed. But for my young family, there was a reason and need to explore my heritage and theirs. And that's where we go back to when I was discussing, like going back into Native American history of resistance and so on and so forth. But what do you think of that quote where he says assimilation was tempting and encouraged uh, by a society that preferred its Indians to be caricatures? Not the assimilation, assimilation is tempting, but the Indians to be caricatures. That's like the most powerful part of that quote. What is he saying about the United States? How do we think of Native Americans? I mean, it's the classic, I think of like the old like cartoon, right? The old, the 
indigenous person represented in the cartoon with the feather and the the chanting and the, it's outrageous. And so he's arguing like, since that's what they want us to be, and that's how we've been portrayed, it actually is fairly tempting to assimilate into modern American society to try to escape that. But by doing so, they have no choice but to completely ostracize themselves from their history and their culture as well, which very clearly they don't want to do. They're basically stuck between a rock, pun intended, and a hard place where they have, they really, they can't win, essentially. They either have to abandon all of their heritage and their culture and their history and assimilate into society, or they have to remain this character that is used by American culture in very specific demeaning and discriminatory ways. Absolutely. Uh, what the government did not calculate, however, if you were going to plop all of these First Nations into a city, and again, many of them are from different, different, different tribes or different nations themselves. So you could have Sioux, you could have Nez Perce, you could have Mohawk, you could have Seneca, you could have uh, Creek, you could have them all plopped into the same place. And even though they're of, of different nations, and if we're talking hundreds of years ago, they may not have even spoken the same language. Now they're all getting together and the government did not like account for them actually getting together and forming new communities that reinvigorate Native American heritage. The government did not account for that, but they did it. And again, I think that's within the context of the 1960s movements. Um, and I think that really had a powerful impact on these individuals trying to find themselves in these new urban environments. I mean, I think so, that it's not too outlandish to really call this a refugee situation that was created by the US government within US borders. You know what I mean? Oh, like they forcefully moved these people out of their homes and then created a situation that they were completely unprepared for to try to assimilate them into these large urban areas, which didn't go well, clearly, and created, well, it had outcomes that the US government was not planning on. Eventually, there is a, a, a meeting or a, a, a commission, a National Advisory Commission meant to try and like figure the situation out about. It's called the, it was the National Advisory Commission on Rural Poverty in 1967. Um, and uh, uh, a, uh, an individual named Clyde Warrior, who's Ponca, um, he gave a long speech about the situation uh, in 1967. I'm not going to read the whole speech, but he makes some uh, interesting assertions in a quote I'm going to read here about what was going on at the time. And I quote, he says, we are not free. We do not make choices. Our choices are made for us. We are poor. For those of us who live on reservations, these choices and decisions are made by federal administrators, bureaucrats, and their yes-men, euphemistically called tribal governments. Those of us who live in non-reservation areas have our lives controlled by local white power elites. We have many rulers. They're called social workers, cops, school teachers, churches, etc., and now OEO employees. They call us into meetings to tell us what's good for us and how they've programmed us, or they come into our homes to instruct us on their manners, and their manners are not always what one would call polite by Indian standards, or perhaps really by any standards. Okay, so Clyde Warrior here is talking about like the new oppressors, and it's not just like the military anymore. He calls out social workers as oppressors, cops as oppressors, which is probably not that controversial, school teachers as uh, oppressors, even the churches are oppressors. Why? What is he at? How could Clyde Warrior say that about these individuals? I mean, these are all institutions that are forcibly they don't see it this way, obviously, but from his perspective, forcing them to assimilate into a, the culture of the United States, into capitalism, into patriarchy, into we could go on and on and on. All of the things that for the most part, the indigenous people, it wasn't a part of their history and their culture. Yep. 
So they're, these are oppressive institutions that are forcing these things upon the indigenous people. For our example here, resistance formed under a new council. This council that formed in the Bay Area would be called the United Bay Area Council of American Indian Affairs. Uh, uh, Adam Fortunate Eagle was elected as the chairman of the United Bay Area Council of American Indian Affairs. So this is like an organization that really is meant to be uh, run by Native Americans for Native Americans in contrast to the institutions we just got done talking about. BIA, OEO, social workers, churches, public education, all of these things um, that are oppressive to Native Americans. This was meant to be in contrast to that. And Adam Fortunate Eagle is elected as the chairman. Between 1962 and 1969, the United Bay Area Council engaged in community awareness events, small-scale politics, and charitable acts for all the newly arriving refugee Native Americans. Uh, they also were around to witness the aforementioned first occupation of Alcatraz by Richard McKenzie back in 1964. Adam Fortunate Eagle had this to say, even at night, the revolving searchlight on the Coast Guard lighthouse beckoned to you. And you thought, those 20 acres and all those buildings, all empty, all falling apart from neglect, and we have nothing. So again, he knows that Alcatraz is closed. It closed in 1963. It's, it's just sitting there, like it's just surplus property. He saw Richard McKenzie's attempt at occupying it, and Alcatraz is now like beckoning to him, um, which is, I mean, it's, 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 it's super telling about what's going to happen. In terms of some other structural events, those of you that know a little bit about like structuralism and revolutionary theory, these are events that the uh, First Nations themselves had like no say so in, but they kind of build the context for why the social movement is about to take place. So these are events that are important that we must also kind of like chime, I, I must implement here in, um, in our discussion. Two structural events are important. First and foremost, the city of San Francisco accepted a bid for Alcatraz to be purchased by a very rich white man named Lamar Hunt. And his goal was to turn Alcatraz into an island um, resort style complex. For those of you that don't know who Lamar Hunt is, he's most famous for owning the Kansas City Chiefs and having the, uh, the football team and having the AFC championship game trophy named after him for being a, an architect of the AFL or NFL or the AFL turned NFL, you know what I'm trying to say. But the fact that he was the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs, I mean, like the... I, I don't know. Nick, you have something to say. No. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's the irony is just completely ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other structural event besides like this island potentially being sold to a rich oil tycoon who also owns an uh, NFL team. Some, I mean, you can check it up for me real quick, Nick, if you want. I don't know if I care if it was the NFL or the AFL at the time, but it doesn't matter what he's a rich dude. Okay. The other structural event is um, on October 10th of that year, um, the uh, meeting hall where the United Bay Area or where the Bay, where the United Council, excuse me, I'm having a hard time spitting this out, where the United Council would meet, where they would actually hold all their, their meetings, burned down. It burned down in a fire on October 10th. So these two things are going to further motivate um, Adam Fortunate Eagle and these other important revolutionary leaders to basically decide they need to go get Alcatraz. They need to go get Alcatraz. Um, what did they want? Well, at various meetings, it's important to understand that when we're gonna, you're going to run a, a, a successful social movement, you actually have to have an outline of what your, your quote unquote vision of tomorrow is or what your, your narrative is going to be as you move forward. So they actually had to decide. They created a vision. This is what they wanted to do on Alcatraz if they were successfully able to occupy it. Real quickly, 
Uh, first, they wanted Alcatraz to be completely autonomous. They wanted it to be run by Native Americans for Native Americans. They wanted to uh, create an Indian-run university. Again, their terminology, not mine. Um, they wanted to create a museum. They wanted to create a cultural center. They wanted to create an ecological center back before like learning about ecology was cool. Um, and they wanted to create a trade school. All of these were going to make the final initiative in what Alcatraz was going to be if it remained in the hands of Native Americans, if I guess the occupation was successful. So they decide they're going to come up with a new name that is going to basically symbol, uh, symbolize um, what they're about. They decided uh, on the very simplistic name, Indians of all tribes. Essentially, this meant like all nations, did not matter. If you were First Nation, you were going to be able to be part of this movement. They didn't want to alienate anybody because of maybe centuries old rivalries, rivalries between tribes or nations. Indians of all tribes, because again, when when these people were taken off of their their reservations and their land and just plopped in the Bay Area, it it they did there was no rhyme or reason. It wasn't like all Mohawk were put here and then all Chickasaw were put here or whatever. Like they were all just put in there together. Okay, who is going to carry out the occupation? This is what they the the, the council had to decide. First, the older generation represented by the council itself, the older generation that had been living in the Bay Area, the United Council, is going to act as the material and ideal support staff on the mainland. This must be stressed that the older generation, and again, this is where guys like Adam Fortunate Eagle come in, part of that older generation, that more established generation, they're not going to actually occupy the island. They're merely going to um, provide uh, material and ideal support. When I say that, basically money and resources and propaganda, those types of things are going to be taking place on the mainland. The actual occupiers are going to be the young First Nation members, many of which were fresh off the reservation and just plopped into, into, uh, into the um, Bay Area. Why do you think they wanted it to be mostly a youth movement that actually held Alcatraz, Nick? I mean, there are many reasons. The first is like just logistically, it's young people are more limber and nimble and like could make the journey and be there and probably survive more easily on the island with limited resources. Um, and I think the elders probably had more experience and were more qualified to whatever, quote unquote, hold down the home front, right? Like the propaganda aspects and dealing with the media at home and like, et cetera, being able to sort of round up the troops to get food and to, so forth, the resources needed to support the people on the island. Absolutely. Um, there was a party held by the United, uh, by the United Council um, which was meant to actually secretly serve as a press release to like the, 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 uh, uh, the press of San Francisco. Um, basically, because again, this is, this is meant to be a symbolic act. Uh, symbolic acts like this require press coverage. Like, like that's what makes them symbolic. Like we already know that this isn't gonna be like some strong military takeover. That's not what this is going to be. It's a symbolic act. So it requires the press to be on, on their side. So the United Council holds this party where the press is to attend. And there's gonna be a secret press release um, about when this is going down so that they can make a big hullabaloo in the newspapers and get people's attention. That's what this is about. It's at this party, though, that um, they uh, link up with an amazing um, organizer, social movement organizer from uh, San Francisco State University. He is a student and he is a member of the Mohawk Nation and his name was Richard Oakes. 
Richard Oakes meets up with the United Council, and again, he is everything you want in a um, an organizer. He is charismatic. He is an amazing speaker. He is energetic. Um, he was already kind of a big player on his own college campus. And the fact that he's First Nation really like just drives this home. Like that's what he had been advocating for. So Richard Oakes is going to be actual is going to actually become the face of the occupation. I must stress, however, everything's done democratically. They don't have like a leader, but because he is going to be the most recognizable face and the most charismatic, the press is going to eventually assume him to be the leader. He's really not. He's just um, this, again, this amazingly energetic, charismatic person. In fact, I, I, Nick, do you have any commentary on why sometimes in like fully like horizontal democratic movements, we still, especially as historians or even as people covering the current events, look for like this one individual that we can peg as leader? Why, why, what's wrong with us in our Western thinking? Why are we like this? Because this, this movement was horizontal, right? Yeah, we lack the, I mean, I think it's just a reflection of traditional American culture of not traditional like indigenous but like united states capitalist etc culture that we we can't fathom not having a hierarchy that because of the way our society is structured there must be someone in charge at all times someone that can represent the thoughts and feelings and the opinions of everyone else and the, the other example that when you brought that up i was thinking of marcos with the zapatistas right yeah like he became the spokesperson because he could speak the discourse that the Westerners spoke and so forth, right? But he's not even, he's not the leader of the movement by any means. The same goes for Oaks here, right? The sort of interfacing between a horizontal movement and the hierarchical press and et cetera in mainstream society is an interesting dynamic. And they, they, they have no idea how to do that without just picking one person to represent the whole which clearly like can't ever be done adequately because that's not how the movement works. Which speaks to like the embarrassing, like ideal hypocrisy of like American thinkers, really, if we really want to dig into it, that like First Nations have been running democracies for longer than, 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 than European or quote unquote white or Western culture, whatever you want to call it, for very, for so long. Like the experts on how democratic systems work, right? From like natural democracy to the Iroquois League of Peace and Power and how they organize um, to, I mean, you brought up the Zapatistas, like they have these like horizontal, um, um, programs already in place while you know Europeans were still like bowing down to like monarchs because of divine right to rule because you know like I mean it's 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 absolutely funny but when Westerners finally caught on to democratic ideals when they finally uh, decided they didn't want to live under monarchies anymore the irony is that they never really like actually changed their habits like idealistically they said they believed in these things but materially they changed nothing they still lived in hierarchies I mean you know we, we, we've talked about it in past um, um, episodes George Washington they wanted to call him his high mightiness like he was yeah, I mean it's 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 funny that we say in the Western world, we believe in democracy and everybody having a say so and so, but we don't practice it in any way, shape or form. You don't go to a job, right? Your job is a hierarchy. Your classroom is a hierarchy. The military is a hierarchy. The government is a hierarchy. Uh, corporations are a hierarchy. You have to climb the proverbial ladder. Like, I mean, it, there's so little democracy in Western life, like the actual life we live like, cool, every two to four years, we get to like check a box on a form and send it in through the mail. That's not democracy. Like we, our life is not democratic. And the fact that we, this is just one, again, brief symbolic example where even when we see other societies operating way more democratically than we are, we can't handle it. Our brain can't handle it. And we immediately point to that's got to be the guy. Well, and not only that, but 
when the quote unquote West adopted democracy as an ideal, they did so much mental gymnastics and crafting very specific and intentional crafting of the historical narrative to change the story to where it was a Western invention. Right, democracy. Athens, Athenian democracy yeah, and Roman exactly. republicanism and oh God, yeah, what an embarrassment. Okay, let's talk about, let's get back into the history real quick. They have ultimately, after everybody's kind of involved and they hold a couple of meetings, they decide that the first operation to try and actually take Alcatraz and they have the press show up, right? They have that party to tell the press, this is when, this is when, this is where, this is how it's going down. The press shows up on November 9th. Excuse me. Yeah, November 9th. This is going to be their first operation. The irony is that this first attempt to basically take a boat to Alcatraz fails. There's actually not enough room on the boats for the entire occupation force, but the press was there to like cover it. So it's actually not a total loss. And they hear this amazing speech given by Richard Oakes. And like there, like you guys can check on YouTube, maybe we'll link it. Like you can actually hear him giving the speech. It is amazing. So I'm not going to do as good a job as he is, but regardless, I think it's amazing and we have to hear the speech. So I'm going to go through it. This is the speech that ends up being um, given by Richard Oakes. He says, and I quote, to the great white father and all his people, we, the Native Americans, reclaim the land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. We wish to be fair and honorable in all our dealings with the Caucasian, with the Caucasian inhabitants of this land and thereby offer the following treaty will purchase Alcatraz Island for $24 in glass beads and red cloth, a precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago. We know that $24 in trade goods for these 16 acres is more than was paid when Manhattan Island was sold, but we know that land values have risen over the years. Our offer of $1.24 per acre is greater than the 47 cents per acre the white men are now paying California Indians for their land. We will give the inhabitants of this land a portion of their own to be held in trust by the American Indian government for as long as the sun shall rise and the rivers go down to the sea to be administered by the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs. We will further guide the inhabitants in the proper way of living. We'll offer them our religion, our education, our lifeways in order to help them achieve our level of civilization and thus raise them and all their white brothers up from their savage and unhappy state. We offer this treaty in good faith and wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with all white men. I'm going to pause there and quote, Nick, what do you think of like this just dripping satire, just biting satire against like everything white people think of First Nations? No, uh, yeah, it's straight fire. It's one of the better examples of a speech just denigrating white American culture that exists. It reminds me actually a lot of the scum manifesto. Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. All right, let me continue. Quote, we feel that this, is, this so-called Alcatraz Island is more than suitable as an Indian reservation as determined by the white man's own standards. By this, we mean that this place resembles most Indian reservations in that it's isolated from modern facilities and without adequate means of transportation. It has no fresh running water. The sanit sanitation facilities are inadequate. There are no oil or mineral rights. There's no industry and so unemployment is very great. There are no healthcare facilities. The soil is rocky and non-productive and the land does not support game. There are no educational facilities. The population has always been held as prisoners and kept dependent upon others. Further, it would be fitting and symbolic that ships from all over the world entering the Golden Gate would first see Indian land and thus be reminded of the true history of this nation. This tiny island would be a symbol of the great lands once ruled by free and noble Indians. Any other thoughts on on Richard Oakes, just straight fire speech. And again, Not he didn't yet. write it himself. The council wrote it, but yeah. Yeah, 
No, good stuff. Okay. Native Americans throughout the region were invigorated and a real landing occupation was eventually organized uh, uh, just over a week later. On November 20th of 1969, occupiers landed on Alcatraz at 3 a.m. where they were met with the lone caretaker of the island, a man named Gled Dodson. Um, and rather than being upset that these Native Americans had come to occupy the island, he was basically like guarding. Um, he basically offered them uh, to come hang out in the former warden's accommodations and fed them. Like, he's like, welcome the man. Well, you're here. You might as well, might as well do this. The government response, however, came quick. At first, the government itself demanded for these Native Americans to desert the island. The only ones that actually left the island, however, did so to negotiate with the Department of Interior or to plan the new society to endure the long haul of statelessness and assure pressure from the outside um, uh, or pressure on the outside powers. So essentially they did, even though the government basically said, you gotta leave, they stuck around. And the only ones that left went to uh, negotiate with the government, specifically the government department of the interior. As far as how the island itself was going to work now that people were uh, basically occupying it and going to live there for the foreseeable future, um, at basically in protest, um, the first thing they decided they were going to do on the island was democratically elect a council for interaction with the outside world from the island itself. So this isn't going to be the same as the Bay Area United Council. This is going to be a council specifically for Alcatraz. And this council was going to decide how they're going to interact with the Bay Area Council back on the mainland, as well as um, US government. Um, the council was also going to basically, quote unquote, explore the island. The island's not huge, but they were going to explore the island to figure out what was needed for the long term. Basically, they wanted to make sure that if they're going to be there for the long term, they need to be able to survive on this island, which, as we already discussed, has like almost no natural resources. And the, the facilities are all like, uh, I mean, they're just, they're, they're done. Like the facilities are old. They've been sitting around for years at this point. So. Um, Ross Harden, who is one of the occupiers, he is a Winnebago nation. He says this, I must mention that nothing was put out to the put out at the time without the consent of the general membership. So anything that the council decided had to go back to the quote unquote people to get their consent to release whatever it was, decisions, information, et cetera. So it goes back to that idea of like the, uh, how an actual democracy is supposed to work. Not like how the United States works, not how England works, not how France works, not how Canada works, like an actual democracy. Um, so I think that's important to, uh, to note. One person equaled one vote on all decisions. It was direct democracy. Real quick, Nick, anything on direct democracy in contrast to what we say passes as democracy in these Western nations? Yeah, I mean, like direct democracy, as you just said, is a one person, one vote, and usually every person gets to vote on every issue, right? Which is a long, uh, a huge delineation from what we have in the United States where you know, we have representatives and no one gets to vote other than the representatives on issues and so forth. And due to like, you know, campaign financing and stuff like that, it, 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 we, they don't even represent people well. Yeah. Um, okay. Again, this concept was very difficult for the Western press to understand. So when they, when the Western press tried to get more and more information about what was going on in Alcatraz, rather than deal with the people, they obviously gravitated to Richard Oakes, which again, when the press does this, this makes it look like Richard Oakes to everybody is like this, this de facto leader of the movement. Okay, the second thing they needed to do, this, uh, this Alcatraz Council now, they, needed, uh, they decided they needed to uh, implement immediate duties to basically get the island up and running for occupation. So they did this through volunteer work, uh, basically getting people to volunteer for various things. 
So people would volunteer for things like dock control and coordination because boats were coming back and forth with supplies, food, water, etc. They decided they needed people to um, basically volunteer to cook. There was a security detail. They needed people willing to do sanitation. They needed people willing to do childcare. Yes, eventually small children ended up showing up on some of these boats. They needed um, uh, people to uh, volunteer to be the communications leaders. Eventually a radio station would be implemented into Alcatraz. Um, these are all important aspects of basically making this a long-term occupation. The third thing the council needed to do was navigate the relationship with the mainland support group, i.e. the United Council back, uh, basically the elders back in San Francisco. They needed to navigate that relationship. They serve as the first representation of the occupation. So the directives, they're basically, they wanted the directives to align. Essentially that when the press had something they needed to um, discuss or wanted to know information uh, about or needed interviews, they went to the, Bay, the, the United Council in the Bay Area first. So they wanted to make sure that both councils were basically coordinated. Um, so it's important. Uh, Adam Fortunate Eagle had this to say. He says, we feel that the island is the only bargaining power that we have with the federal government. It's the only way we have to get them to notice us or even want to deal with us. We're going to maintain our occupation until the island, which is rightfully ours, is formally granted to us. Otherwise, they'll forget us They always, like they always have, but we will not be forgotten. The fourth thing they decided they needed to do was how to handle outside forces. The United States Coast Guard showed up and they blockaded the island, limiting the transport of basically donated subsistence goods and more occupiers. Basically, the Coast Guard shows up and surrounds the island and blockades people like trying to bring food and water and, of course, more occupiers. Um, both Native American and non-Native American civilians were eventually able to found holes to support breaking the blockade. And the Coast Guard uh, kind of had to let them break the blockade. Um, so I must stress this, that, that this uh, enough press was out and because of, again, the context of like fighting the power in the 60s, white, black, Latino, there was a lot of support among those communities a well in San Francisco and they wanted to help the occupation. So they were basically trying to run supplies out there and the Coast Guard was blocking them, but eventually the Coast Guard had to let them pass. Because what was the Coast Guard's option? If they would have actually began to detain some of these other helpers or in a worst case scenario, start shooting some of these other helpers, what might happen? I mean, yeah, then it blows up to like next level. No, nobody wants that. The government doesn't want to have that on their hands for sure. It would have been a public relations nightmare for mm -hmm. the government as well as the United States Coast Guard uh, amid everything 1960s. Um, news of the My Lai massacre in Vietnam had already become a thing where like, yeah, literally US, US soldiers are, are just spraying down women, elderly and children in a village of My Lai in Vietnam. Uh, we may do an episode on that one in the future. Um, later on, but like still during the context of the... Um, of the occupation, uh, the Kent State Massacre uh, becomes a thing. Um, and then the Jackson State Massacre in Mississippi. So the government already was like dealing with um, this problem of shooting its own citizens that were protesting. So yeah, they did not want to make more of a PR nightmare for themselves. They also began direct discourse with the executive branch of the United States. At this time, it is the Richard Nixon administration. Oh boy. Um, and initially the discourse they sought with the Nixon administration was met with apathy. Um, I mean, this is a quote at the time from the government, since force could not be used, isolation, the passage of time and the federal bureaucracy would be the weapons essentially. But what they're saying is that like the way they're going to deal with the Alcatraz occupation, since they can't do it violently is just like wait it out. That was their goal. They're going to wait it out. Eventually these occupiers are going to get tired. 
I like how they say the federal bureaucracy is a weapon. Like, yeah, yeah. Just admitting that it's so such nonsense that it'll take so long for anything to happen that eventually people just give up. I mean, yeah, it does work oftentimes, unfortunately. Um, Okay, the last thing that they need to do, the fifth thing. They need to craft a founding narrative about what they are doing there, reviving their culture. I talked about way earlier, um, like what their goal was, museums and universities and education and ecology and all those types of things. Well, they need to craft a founding narrative alongside like the, the great, the great uh, speech that Richard Oakes provided. For many of the occupiers and their supporters, the regeneration of Indian people came to be tied symbolically and actually to a self-conscious remaking, excuse me, of the island. That's not my quote. That quote comes from an author named Strange. But Regardless, like that's what they're going to do. They're starting with the traditional Native American holiday. They occupied in um, November. So what holiday is coming up? Well, it's actually a Native American holiday first, not an American holiday. I cannot stress this enough. Thanksgiving was just one of many things that white culture stole from Native Americans. It absolutely just stole it. So they start with Thanksgiving. It fell within the first week of the occupation and this Thanksgiving feast and celebration is going to be a celebration of the occupation and kind of set a precedent, a symbolic precedent for the symbolic takeover of Alcatraz and what their goals were. Hundreds of people flocked to the island, including the press, um, for arguably one of the most fellas, celeb- for arguably one of the most, maybe the second most famous celebration of Thanksgiving in U.S. history of the first, of course, we all know about because we did a kindergarten play about it. But the second most famous celebration of Thanksgiving could be this one that took place in 1969 on Alcatraz. And to this day, most people don't know this, First Nations still go to Alcatraz every Thanksgiving for a celebration feast. Did you know that, Nick? No, I did not. Um, So in addition to the amazing Thanksgiving celebration that took place, they also, again, when crafting a narrative of what they're going to be, they claim things, to be blunt. You can see in my background right now, like some of the graffiti, they basically graffitied Alcatraz, um, to be blunt, and people are like, ah, graffiti is, it's gross, but no, this is, what they're doing is just basically taking white culture of basically planting flags everywhere they've been and reclaiming shit. That's what they're doing, right? Just like when Columbus came and plant, like in, 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 in the Caribbean and planted the flag of the king and queen of Spain, basically saying, mine, 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 this is reverse of that, mine. So you can see on the island, you see that um, these vibrant messages and images of liberation and protest gave the site new meanings. You are on Indian land, red power. This land is my land. Yada hey, which is basically the Diné uh, slash Navajo um, word for like, it's a greeting. It's basically high. Okay, the sixth thing they started to do was work on that vision. On December 11th of 1969, the Big Rock School was opened and held its first session of class for children that lived on the island. This highly glossed over event was more than just like a logistical necessity of getting kids to go to school on the island. It denoted the first Indian run school system, public school system in the country on Alcatraz in 1969 during an occupation. And I quote from the author Heath in this case, to guarantee their historic life by asserting their Indianness, they apparently intended to invest as much red power in education, po- educational populism as a vehicle for realizing tribal continuity. Continuing the narrative, on December 22nd, 1969, Radio Free Alcatraz began broadcasting, and it was led by uh, an amazing radio personality uh, to this day, John Trudell. Um, 
And again, maybe we should link uh, one or two of his broadcasts in the notes. We probably will. Um, but yeah, it, it is. Uh, you can also find them on YouTube. You can also find them on AmericanArchive.org. Um, some of them are like, yeah, like they're, they've been archived because they are primary sources of the occupation. So it's, it's actually amazing that they were able to get these things up and running so quickly, like in under a month. All right. The seventh thing they had to do was deal with the inevitable feeling of being trapped on an island after the initial euphoria wore off. That's the other thing they had to do. Richard Oakes had this to say. He says, and I quote, we're the only kinds of birds that don't fly, jailbirds. Jailbirds, wards of the government, prisoners of war, what's the difference? Before it was known as the Bureau of Indian Affairs, our governing agency, it was under the War Department. We were called prisoners of war then. The two agency, agencies are synonymous. During the Second World War, the Japanese prisoner of war camps were run by the same people that run the BIA. Somebody in Washington said, hey, this is a natural. We still considered ourselves prisoners of war. We'll always be at war with the values of this society. Any thoughts on Oaks's like just again straight fire? No, I mean that's good. I like the, you know, we'll always be at war with this society and so forth. That's good. The eighth thing they had to do was overcome internal adversity. Um, as 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 wonderful as we've painted uh, Native American values, these utopian democratic values, there is a lot of these people had also been socialized into some Americanness. That assimilation did take hold, so there were going to be some divides that eventually cropped up. On January 3rd, 1970, one of Oakes's stepdaughters, unfortunately and, and heartbreakingly, died um, on Alcatraz. She passed away on the island after falling from a stairwell. The reason this is important is that doesn't necessarily represent eventually a divide, but the fact that Oakes is going to be, and, and Oakes's family is going to be um, just heartbroken, they're going to leave. They're going to, be leave. they're going to leave Alcatraz to grieve. And so the event itself basically kind of marks this turning point where, again, Oakes is not a leader, but this tragedy happening to Oakes's family is going to, I mean, it's going to make things a little bit tougher on everybody. The, tra the tragedy was compounded by a little growing animosity from some other occupiers for Oakes's burgeoning notoriety. And again, I must stress this, Richard Oakes didn't want this notoriety per se. He wasn't acting as some sort of dictator. He never got an ego about this. He never did. But because of the way the press was like framing things, a little bit of, again, I, I used the word animosity. I don't even know if that's the right word. Um, I can't think of a better one right now, though, but people began having a little bit of doubts um, about the, the, the democratic processes there. And again, Oaks never took over anything. That was not whatever happened. But anyway, okay. Some of the carryover of the prior forced dependency policy also began to like make their way, make its way onto Alcatraz. And this is probably one of the biggest things that caused the occupation trouble. It wasn't the Coast Guard blockade. It wasn't the uh, war of attrition with the uh, Nixon um, administration. It's alcohol. It's always alcohol. Uh, you know, I mean, early colonists, I mean, even Ben Franklin uh, uh, has quoted, has been saying like one of the easiest ways uh, that, that we can eventually, and I'm paraphrasing here, is to conquer Native Americans, is to get them dependent upon alcohol. And it, it, it rears its ugly head here in Alcatraz. Al alcohol begins, at first it wasn't allowed to be there, but slowly but surely you get enough people on boats making their way at all times of day onto the island. They're bringing with them alcohol. And the sad part is much of the alcohol was not brought, brought by Native Americans. It was brought by white hippies that wanted to be part of the next cool thing. And so they wanted to party on the island with the Native Americans. And with them, they brought the alcohol and various other um, consumable um, um, drugs. So it really, 
it's sad. I mean, in a way that we could argue that these hippies were trying to be like not oppressive, but because of just who they were and how they lived their lives, they're being oppressive. I mean, is there a better way to frame that, Nick? No, I think it's just like a circumstance, a coincidence, right, of these things coming together, this sort of, like you said, the hippie lifestyle and the counterculture, et cetera, that's going on with drugs and alcohol mixing together with this effort of indigenous peoples trying to make uh, make a point, really, a symbolic stand that just has consequences that really nobody wanted. Yeah, some experimental drugs of the 60s made their way there as well. Um, and the media got wind of this and they just jumped all over this. They jumped all over the fact that, oh my gosh, maybe this isn't some sort of like larger symbolic social movement. Maybe it's just an excuse to party. Um, and they did. They, the media, when the media flipped from like backing the occupation more or less, or at least just reporting the occupation to demonizing it because of the uh, alcohol and drugs that ended up showing up on the island. I mean, that really, it's key. I mean, it, the, the occupation lost support there. The government, uh, in turn, cut off all negotiation with the occupiers in the summer of 1970. They're at an impasse. The island itself, um, basically the occupiers wanted to keep this island um, and have national issues addressed. I guess I didn't say that very clearly. What I'm trying to say is even though the government cut off all negotiation with the occupiers in 1970, there's an impasse here. It's not just about the island. It's uh, yes, they would have liked to keep the island and build the university there and build the museum and all the other things that we talked about. But this was also, it's, it's really not just about Alcatraz. It's about having all these other national issues addressed. Like I said, the IRA from back in the 30s, the Domesday Book, the, uh, 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 the closing of reservations or the occupation of reservations. They wanted all of these things addressed. And we've reached, it, by the summer of 1970, a, a war of attrition, as I've already mentioned. The government, to try and like accelerate this war of attrition, cut off the water supply and electricity to Alcatraz. So this is actually very, I mean... I don't know what the term is besides war of attrition. You cut off water, you cut off electricity. It's quite nefarious for them to do this. People are going to suffer. What would you say this is? I, I mean, I mean, counter, counter revolutionary features for sure. But like, where does this, where do you stand ethically on the government measures here of cutting off fresh water and electricity to the island? I mean, I think we all know where I stand personally ethically on this matter. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. But it's sort of the step between. Like, obviously, they were denouncing this action from the get-go, but this is the next step. Like you said, the Coast Guard is not just going to start opening fire on people, but they're, they're figuring out something they can do that isn't going to be a PR nightmare that will help them bring this to an end as quickly as absolutely possible, right? Hopefully, no one will die. They'll just say, okay, we don't have water anymore. Let's go home, right? I think right. it's absolutely ridiculous, clearly, but it's like the next step, the next sort of putting more more pressure on the occupiers to leave without going to extremes, I guess. Yeah, well, and, and, and cutting off water and electricity is actually much nicer than the government is now to protesters, as we all know. They have no problem opening fire uh, with, with uh, uh, rubber bullets, sometimes live ammo, uh, tear gas, uh, shields, batons, whatever. Um, it is, I mean, wad shoot, I could get sidetracked on this topic for a while. It's kind of funny that we consider like the 60s, this hotbed of like social movement. Um, and it was, it was, I'm not saying that's silly. Um, but like the oppression they faced from um, policing institutions was so much less than what protesters now face. Um, I mean, just think about Dakota Access Pipeline and the sound trucks they brought in, what are those MRADs or whatever, like 
uh, gosh, we, we probably do need to do an episode of, uh, about militarization of policing. We probably need to do that in the future. Okay, anyway, moving forward. So one of the things that happened uh, at this time is a fire also broke out on the island of quote unquote unknown origin and it ended up destroying a large portion of the infrastructure while positioning the occupiers in a publicly negative light. You see the press and the government were eventually going to able to be able to frame this fire as it's because of the occupation and it's now destroying this historic monument or whatever. Whereas the fire is actually of an unknown origin and very it could be like it could be it could have been started by the coast guard themselves we we just wouldn't know right like that's what they were saying at the time what happened of course like this is how the united states government fights dirty wars this it's not unique to alcatraz they actually went harder in places that are not on u.s soil <laughs> um throughout the middle east and latin america and, and southeast asia and so on and so forth they're experts at fighting what are called quote-unquote dirty wars and they're dirty wars because they fight dirty um so that's important for us to understand the government excuses its ramping up of operations without electricity on the island um, because essentially they're going to make the point that they can go harder against the occupiers because without the electricity, the island no longer functions as it's like lone last function of a lighthouse. They're basically saying without electricity, Alcatraz can no, no longer operate as a lighthouse. Well, they're the ones that turned off the fucking electricity. Yeah, it's like... Oh, man, we had to turn off the electricity on these protesters. But since we did, now it can't be a lighthouse. So we really have to go in and like get them out of there like idiots. They launch an operation. God, I, I love talking about these ludicrous government operations. It's called Operation Parks. And Operation Parks was meant to remove all occupants during a night raid with a heavily armed force. Unfortunately, the San Francisco Chronicle, the press stepped up and discovered the plan. And the fact that the press published it killed the operative. So in this case, the press comes back to helping the occupiers. So that's good. Um, so, I mean, all of these things are taking place basically from the summer of 1970 on. The occupation's not even, you know, it's, it's what, six months old at this point. And things are starting to get very difficult on the protesters. Um, on June 10th of 1971, I mean, I, 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 I don't even know how the occupation persisted even longer than it did. It, it lasts almost, as you can see by the timeline I gave, it lasted another year, basically a year under these, this war of attrition, where like a whole bunch of cool things happen on Alcatraz that we don't have time to get into right now, but eventually inform later Native American movements like the formation of, of AIM, the American Indian Movement. Technically, I guess it had already been formed, but they go there and begin to talk to the occupiers. And, and we know that AIM is going to go on and launch numerous occupations elsewhere. Um, there is numerous beautiful uh, radio broadcasts, numerous school lessons. The culture itself really comes together during the occupation. And the government, uh, however, is going to wait them out. And life is hard on the occupiers. It's so hard that in this case, we might argue that the government war of attrition works as fewer and fewer people end up on the island. So by the time June 10th of 1971 rolls around, the FBI, alongside other federal authorities remove the last remaining 15, 15 members of the Alcatraz occupation. So I guess I did that a little bit quickly, but over that last year, um, this war of attrition did lead to basically only 15 people remaining on Alcatraz and they're forcefully removed on June 10th of 1971. So, um, I guess now we do a little section here. Was it all for naught? They didn't get to keep Alcatraz. They didn't get to build their university on Alcatraz and their cultural center and their museum um, and their ecological center and their trade school. They didn't get to build those things on Alcatraz. Was it all for naught? And this is the point we're making here, coming back to the introduction of this um, episode. This was about symbolism and monumentality. 
it actually worked in this regard. Even though they didn't get to keep Alcatraz and now it's like a, a, a tourist destination and whatever and, and, and all that other good stuff, other things happened. So I wanna read a couple of quotes from um, the individuals that actually engaged in the occupation. This comes from Peter Blue Cloud, Blue Cloud who is Mohawk Nation. He says, and I quote, we liberated Alcatraz for everyone. We came to Alcatraz with an idea we would unite our people and show the world that the Indian spirit would live forever. There was little hate or anger in our hearts for the very thought of a lasting unity kept us whole and in harmony with life. From this island would grow a movement which must surely encompass the world. All men of this earth must hunger for peace and fellowship. Wilma Mankiller, Cherokee Nation had this to say, and I quote, they took over the 12 acre island to attract attention to the government's mistreatment of generations of native people. They did it to remind the whites that the land was ours before it was theirs. And I quote George Horse Capture, Gross Ventress. He says, they meant to capture public attention and non-Indians learned more than ever about before about the hundreds of years of injustice to the Indian people. That's just three quick quotes about like what took place symbolically, but there's more. The Nixon administration even granted some various material gains to Native American causes. The Alcatraz episode, and oh, excuse me, this is a quote, the, the Alcatraz episode is symbolic to the Indians and to us it is a symbol of the lack of attention to their unmet needs. You wanna take a wild guess who gave this quote, Nick? It wasn't Nixon, I'll give you that hint. It wasn't Nixon? Yeah, it I have no Nixon. idea. Spiro Agnew. Not known for being some sort of like, wow. yeah, wow, yes, absolutely. Richard Nixon himself followed up with, and I quote, morally and legally unacceptable self-determination among Indian people can and must be encouraged without the threat of eventual termination. Excuse me, I guess I should have framed it since I made the quote short. He's talking about the Termination Act. So he's saying, and I quote, it is morally legal and unacceptable. Self-determination among Indian people can and must be encouraged without the threat of eventual termination. Nixon, Richard frickin' Nixon said this. Unbelievable. He then went on to ask Congress after the occupation to pass eight bills that advanced tribal autonomy and encouraged private aid for social needs. His administration went on to propose 21 more pieces of Indian related legislation to the 91st Congress with only six passing into law. Again, I have never had anything nice to say about Richard Nixon or his administration, but holy crap, where did this come from? Um, yeah, I, okay. I have no idea. Like we talk when we do this lecture in class and stuff, right? This, yeah, like how, you would never, if you just didn't know this history, think that this would be coming from the Nixon administration ever. Uh, even though the 91st Congress was um, um, hesitant to pass this legislation, the 92nd Congress eventually passed 46 um, indigenous related um, acts, um, including the most important Native Alaska Claims Act. It officially granted new lands to First Nations. Um, and again, I must stress this, um, even though we're calling this a victory, the historian in me wants to also say like, fuck off. It was originally the other land and we're now we're relying on the United States government to grant them their land back that was already originally their land. It's right. absolutely disgusting depending on how we frame this. But in the framing of the 1960s, I suppose, or 1970s now, it is progress in air quotes. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to go off on too long a tangent. This episode is going to be, is, is already kind of long, but yeah, it's just, uh, okay. So um, some of the other examples of this new land, new land, quote unquote, that would be granted back to First Nations, it was their land to begin with. 
The Taos Pueblo Indians received 45,000 acres of their original land around the sacred Blue, Lake, Blue Lakes. The Warm Springs peoples received 160,000 acres of land that was originally theirs along the Columbia River. In terms of education, even though the university on uh, Alcatraz was never opened, New universities were opened. Navajo Community College became the first Indian-run college in the United States. And later, even the Bay Area itself got some satisfaction as the Deganueda Quetzalcoatl University opened on April 2nd of 1971 on land that was formally promised to the University of California. So that is some progress. This land was gonna given, be given to the University of California already from nearby Berkeley. Instead, they gave the land to the Bay Area Native Americans and they did open their university. Again, it's uh, to this day known as DQ, DQU, Daganueta Quetzalcoatl University. Um, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on these, these brief mentions of victory, quote unquote? Again, it's in air quotes, but, but things happened. Like universities were opened. Land was granted back, even though it wasn't Alcatraz itself. Like, it, it, what do you think, Nick? I mean, I guess it's like my movie. initial response is like it's not up for me as a white man to decide. I mean, in terms of like judging the success of the social movement, but yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I think that it's up to the the right. entire movement and the history and the people that are still fighting this specific movement to this day to decide how important the Alcatraz occupation is in their story. I think that it's a huge part, and like you said, most people think that like it failed because they didn't they don't still occupy the island well like that wasn't really the point yes that could have happened but the, even though it didn't it still had a huge huge impact to this day on so many different things i also think sometimes whenever we talk about this history like what could have been like very easily the u.s government could have just granted them that island that even granted them funds to make the improvements and do the things that they wanted to do and like just how amazing that would have been right but that didn't happen. And like, I think it was a pipe dream that that could happen. But so many other things did actually happen that were largely a result of the attention that was garnered because of the occupation. So I personally think it's a, it's a huge milestone in the movement. Yeah, overall. So now the question is, was it too little too late? Sorry, there is, and I will call out the United States government here, there is no I'm sorry for uh, hundreds of years of ethnic cleansing. Right. Again, depending on your source, between 25 and 100 million First Nation peoples were killed during the colonial process, started with the Europeans like the Spaniards, French, English, Dutch, and so on, and finished up by the United States government itself. Millions of people in arguably the largest ethnic cleansing campaign over centuries in human history, in human history. Yeah, I think we can't make the mistake of like talking about the occupation of Alcatraz and the things that did happen that were positive as a result and make the mistake of thinking that like, oh, well, the we're clearly close to making up for those atrocities. Like we're not even close. The struggle there still is, continues. There's no making up for it. There's no Yeah, exactly. You know, oh man, don't even get me started on reparations that we make other people's, other governments pay, but like, uh, it's, 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 it's out of control. Okay, anyway, it wasn't enough for a lot of First Nations either. That's what I'm trying to spit out here. The American Indian movement then became the face of red power. Again, they had already existed, at least as an organization. A couple of them went to visit Alcatraz and see what was going on. And now after the Alcatraz occupation, and even after some of these things were gained, they go harder. They become the face of the full-on red power movement. 
AIM or its members then went on to uh, uh, play the lead role in the 1970 occupation of the Mayflower II in Plymouth, Massachusetts. In 1971, they went on to occupy the Bureau of Indian Affairs offices in Washington, D.C. They also organized the Trail of Broken Treaties, which was like a long march in 1972. Again, the United States government has essentially broken every treaty it's ever signed with First Nations. They went, then went on the longest walk to the Capitol itself in 1978 um, that began in tribute on Alcatraz Island, the longest walk, Alcatraz to D.C. Um, so again, AIM's most famous exploit we know, though, took place, uh, uh, deserving of its own episode, but I'll at least briefly mention it here, on February 23rd of 1973, when they seized Wounded Knee, South Dakota, with the help of a number of Oglala Sioux from the nearby Pine Ridge Reservation, again, symbolism, um, those of you that know a little U.S. history know about the rich, uh, rich, disgusting slaughter that took place during the first Wounded Knee massacre, um, uh, that ended like the last like large scale militant resistance to white occupation. I mean, Wounded Knee is kind of like that symbolic end to like the wars on First Nations, the actual wars on First Nations. Um, so uh, the fact that this took place in the same place uh, in 1973 is important. Um, I guess I'll get the massacre took place back on December 29th of uh, 1890. It's well documented. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I have a couple quotes that I was going to read, but I don't know that it, it, it does any, any, any good for our episode right here um, to talk about what happened in 1890. Maybe it does, I don't know. Um, it, yeah, I mean, yeah, L let's hear from a primary source from 1890 super fast. His name is Black Elk, he witnessed it. He's the most famous primary source. He's Ogallala Lakota. This is what he said, and I quote, I did not know then how much was ended. When I look back now from this high hill of my old age, I can still see the butchered women and children lying heaped and scattered all along the crooked gulch, as plain as when I saw them with eyes young. And I can see that something else died there in the bloody mud and was buried in the blizzard. A people's dream died there. It was a beautiful dream. The nation's hoop is broken and scattered. There is no center any, there is no center any longer and the sacred tree is dead. That's just super heartbreaking, but again, that's the symbolism of Wounded Knee, and it comes back in 1973. It ends up being a 71-day armed standoff in 1973, again, at the same place as this original massacre. Um, other unaffiliated demonstrations also began to sprout up, inspired by AIM, as well as the uh, uh, Indians of all nations from Alcatraz. There was the occupation of Daybreak Star in Washington State. There's also the seizure of the BIA headquarters in Oklahoma City, Minneapolis, and Denver, Colorado. Um, by measure of the immediate and obvious goals stated by Indians of all tribes on that cold November night, 1969, the Alcatraz occupation assumes failure. So, but Nick has already kind of framed that it wasn't, it wasn't. Um, and so I'm going to read a little excerpt from an article I wrote a while back that kind of concludes what we're talking about here. So, um, real quickly. Alcatraz's primary identity still resonates as a white cultural place where the dominant powers outcasts wallowed in exile. This view, however, ignores the numerous gains made by First Nations due to the symbolic gesture of the Alcatraz occupiers. Achievement must be measured by the examples of indigenous unity, native pride, government recognition, and copycat movements um, that we just talked about. Even one of the most respected and grounded native academics in both non-Indian and Indian circles, Donald Fixico, gets caught up in the monumentality of Alcatraz. And I quote, years of frustration at their struggle with the federal bureaucracy led to the occupation that would launch a new American Indian history of self-determination and identity that came directly 
uh, from the Indians themselves. Another respected native academic, Jack Forbes, adds, and I quote, as a symbol and hope, Alcatraz remains extremely important and continues to stand as a reminder of the still unfulfilled promises made by Indians, made to Indians by the United States government, end quote. So while there is little doubt that Alcatraz achieved the goal of symbolic monument monumentality and that a number of positive events occurred in its aftermath, Jack Forbes reminds us that many things remain undone for Native American peoples. Take us out. Oh, you can find us on our website, revolutionandideology.com. If you're watching this on YouTube, we also publish it, all the audio as a podcast. So if you'd rather digest it as a podcast in your podcasting app, you can just search for Revolution and Ideology. If you're listening to this as a podcast, just know that we also have a YouTube channel where we publish audio and video of all of our episodes and other videos that we make for our classes and so forth, lectures and short videos, uh, things like that. Find us on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm Nick. Jared. Later.